Hey, welcome to episode 18. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo. And in today's episode, we have Lucas McKinnon. He's the owner of coreaffinity.com. And in the past four years, he and his partners have acquired over three businesses. In this episode, he talks about the importance of thinking of acquisitions as a team sport versus a solo sport. He goes over the core strategy that they use every time they talk to potential sellers, especially off-market deals, and how he utilized this principle of we're better together. That has worked very well for he and his team. He always has a question, is the seller reasonable, willing to sell, and can they add value to that company? And lastly, he goes over different tactics on how to set up fractional resources to support these different acquisitions. With that, enjoy this episode. Thanks. Hey, Lucas, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe. Uh, thanks for having me. Awesome. So, yeah, I think uh, it sounds like we are part of the same community, Buy Them Bio and Acquisitions Lab, actually. And it before we start recording, you were telling me a little bit about kind of your journey, uh, being in, in multi-decades in your particular niche and have done a few acquisitions already. And so, yeah, with that, I would love to kind of start with maybe a two, three minutes of, of professional background and, and some context for the audience on what you do. Sure. Uh, so before I, I got into the uh, the buy and build and the acquisition game, I, I spent 20 years in the association industry working with trade and nonprofits and professional associations. I bounced around from different aspects, business development, marketing, analysis, finance, operation, and sort of Learn different parts of the uh, of the industry, and over the time, you know, over twenty years, you you build a pretty good network of folks. And our industry gets a little bit of a bad rap in that everyone says it's it's ten years behind on everything from technology to mindset uh, to leadership. And we started into this journey, figuring out how we can how we can better this industry, right? How can we bring it up to date? And there's a lot of businesses out there that. We looked at and said, hey, we could we could bring these under our fold, under our tent and apply some of the things that we've learned operationally, you know, sort of bring them up and and bring them into our industry. And it's been a fun journey. Exciting. Very, very cool. Congrats on those acquisitions. And how long ago was your first acquisition? First acquisitions, probably about three years ago, okay. two, three years ago. And, you know, we started small and it, we sort of almost fell into it, you know, these conversations that come up and. You start going through it, and we uh, we learned a lot. You know, I was telling you before, hey, we, we, with each one of these, we, we learn something new. We reflect. You know, we take a time to pause and go, hey, what did we do really well here? What could we have done better? You know, I said we we get a little we get a little scars. We learn from those. Try to uh, just get better at what we do. Yeah, makes sense. And do you, do you happen to remember where? Kind of like at, at the beginning of that journey where you and your partners, because you keep saying we, so I, I think there's a few people involved and I'd love to talk about that. In fact, your partner is the one that contact, like connected me with you. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to know if you remember when you started thinking about potentially buying businesses, like what, what was kind of the thought process and like, did you just suddenly say, yeah, I'm just going to buy a business and started researching or was it like after a few years, seeing other people doing it? Well, it's a good question. I spent, it feels like many years, uh, it was probably only three or four, but it was, a, it was a long road of trying to just build a business from scratch, right? Start it, bootstrap it, you know, finance it, spend a lot of time up late, you know, 16 hour days and, and uh, just doing everything you can to sort of pinch pennies, it felt like. And 
and uh, and do it all yourself, and then slowly, slowly build. Uh, and then we discussed this concept of, hey, there's businesses out there that have already gone through this phase. What if we can we can learn together? And and we use sort of this. It sounds a little cliche. Better together. And so the first one was was just that. Hey, um, we're both struggling here to get this thing to really ramp up and do the hockey stick thing that we wanted it to do. Why don't we do this together? And uh, ultimately, that meant we folded that business our way. And you immediately get new customers. We immediately got new revenue. We got new opportunities. And then uh, we were able to sort of share our scars, if you will, on what had worked and what had not worked. And suddenly, we were we were twice as good. Excellent. Well, was that kind of like a bolt-on or more like a complementary business? Or do you think it was exactly what you guys were doing? It was just a bigger and larger, um, you know, more established uh, company? Uh, it was doing almost exactly the same thing at the time. And uh, it was slightly smaller than what we were doing. But in that case, I think the succession planning just worked uh, in our favor and, and they were ready to make a change and, and hang it up and retire. And so that's always, you know, can be a sign of the times when it's, you know, the right time to introduce that conversation and talk through that. And the seller was was willing, which is another sort of checkbox that we look for. They were reasonable, you know, checkbox number three. And the long-term value is there. There were really good contracts in that relationship and everything. They were just sort of aligned. Now, did we do it perfectly? No. Um, we learned some things from that also. But that sort of took us on a little bit of a hockey stick trajectory um, just to be able to sort of almost double, you know, sort of overnight. It wasn't overnight, but you get the, you get what I'm saying. And that's where we, you know, we looked around and go, we need to do more of this. This, this completely makes sense. And rather than uh, kill ourselves to try to push this one rock up the hill, um, this better together adage worked for us. Yeah, makes sense. And now before we start kind of talking about each of the deals and whatnot, so you describe a little bit of what your business does in general that main business you started, is that the brand that you keep, you kept, or do you kind of evolve the branding or what's the core company right now? Yeah, Advanza was the original company and that's still technically, you know, yeah, yeah that's that's the business name on paper and everything else. We've, we've rebranded to a bit to Core Affinity is that original business and it focuses on partnerships, relationships, what we in our industry would call affinity programs. Uh, basically contract negotiation with different suppliers for business where we can leverage our buying power, you know, group purchasing and be able to work with our association clients and use them as a conduit to reach those businesses within the different industries and help them with contracts that the majority of them just wouldn't be able to get access to. So if we can leverage the hundreds of millions of dollars of spend that go through our contracts to you know, get you access, Gabe, who, uh, to a discount that would otherwise be uh, reserved for you know, large Fortune 500 companies or what have you. We can add value by by bringing them in for pricing purposes, and then our suppliers will then in turn, you know, get access to new business. And financially, you know, everybody sort of wins when we do that correctly. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious just because, again, I was talking to a friend um, just a few days ago and in um, he owns an electrical company. He works a lot with government and cities and parks and recreation and whatnot. And he actually has a lot of access to certain memberships and like different organizations that are part of like, you know, the drill, like how they work. And he actually gets a lot of business out of that. And we were chatting. We're like, well, why don't you buy up a few associations? And but it's like, well, most of them are nonprofits, I believe. So is that, is that the case? 
Bosmer. Most of them at there, yeah. At the at the tip of the org is a nonprofit. Um, typically, within under that, a lot of them will create service corporations that can be for profit bolt ons um, to that. So they're still governed and and owned by essentially a board. So there, the idea of buying associations is an interesting concept um, and. Most of the associations that we work with are large national trade associations, uh, but we've toyed with the idea of building our own or, or buying some that, that do sort of fall into that category that have you know, good purchasing, good membership, good revenue, good models. Yeah, that's the fun part about this acquisition path is like you start seeing everything as an opportunity to either yeah, roll them off or aggregate and whatnot. It looks like it, it's easier said and done, but it's still possible. So, you know, I think with what you share, like there's three business acquisitions in the past three years. So right before the pandemic, it was your first acquisition or? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was just when we were just getting started. And actually our second was similar, uh, except not as broad in the range of contracts. It It was really sort of centered to a one particular industry. But it was a great industry, and uh, there was a lot of attention, uh, a lot of affinity, and a lot of focus within that organization, which we really, really liked. Again, it was uh, it was sort of a succession model where the owner of that organization was ready to take a next step, and we felt like we had to offer in terms of our marketing, our process, operations, and automations. There was still a lot of long-term value, so when we look at the you know, the willingness of the seller, are, are they reasonable, you know, price and terms, we go back and forth, like we used to say, you know, we would say you get one, you want your price, then we get our terms, or, or vice versa. And then is there long term value, I meaning we could pick this up, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the short term. So could the business survive another pandemic in the short term, because you just at this point, you just don't know. And if it can, or we can, we can sort of float it through, you know, we, we really, we really want to look at what's this business look like in 10 years. And I'm sure, Gabe, you've heard, you know, people typically overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 or other. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. That's it. Other way around. They overestimate what they can do in one, underestimate what you can really do in 10 years. And so we really want to understand what could the business look like in 10 years and where can this thing go? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, a lot of the people that, that are part of this community right now, it's it's quite diverse in, in the fact that like some of them are buying their first business, but just thinking through like the past 20 episodes that I've done and the people that are part of our, our kind of our group and a cohort, a lot of them are either corporate people that are wanting to acquire a company for the first time. It sounds with you and your team, you have like that extra advantage that you have an established business and it's kind of, it's even better now. There may be a bunch of other challenges, which I would love to highlight again, because I think there's a lot in the industry about all the good about buying a business. And I think we're kind of like in this high about it. And somebody told me last week, like, well, Gabriel, there's no incentive for anybody to tell you not to buy a business. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, interesting. That's so true. Everybody's like, yeah, you got to buy a business. You got to buy a business. But in reality, it is challenging. It can be extremely uh, complex and it can also be um, very risky if you don't mitigate that throughout like your due diligence. So it sounds like you have a lot of, of those things in place, but I'm curious to know specifically if the path that you guys pursued was more buying competitors, you'll say, is that right? Competitors in a way? In a way, you know, we're, we're really um, looking now to diversify. So the first two businesses were really tuck-ins. They were very similar to what we were doing. 
The third business was a complete different business in the same industry, again, focused on servicing the same client base within associations. But what they offered was completely different to really anything that we were offering through Core Affinity or any any of the other businesses that are now wholly owned subsidiaries. So we took some of the same principles that we had learned and, and applied that going through, you know, again, reasonable, willing, is this a good deal? And I heard somebody say on, on one of your other pods about patience, and that that really sticks out to us because it, it you know, right? There's like a hype in the industry, right? About oh, you got to buy a business, you got to buy a business, and you got to do that, and this is the only path to do it. It's like Cardone in real estate, right? It's it gets it gets you sort of hyped up, and it's it's you got to do it. I um, love, but it. you really have to be patient because you can get sort of overly excited easily. Like we've jumped into a few conversations with, you know, they started checking the box. They're willing, reasonable, you know, businesses I know. And I feel like I can add a lot of value. But if you don't really stand back and sort of remove some of that emotion, you can get yourself into a bad spot and really, you know, take on a lot of liability. And you really have to look at the whole picture, emotions aside and go, is this the right time? Is this the right price? Is this the right seller? What's inside this business? Is it a widget? Is it a service? You know, what are the people like? What is the culture? And, you know, going through one of the businesses, it was, hey, we can't talk to the people, right? That's sort of faux pas. Like, you don't talk to the people in, within the organization until after it's over. Well, I'll never do that again. Uh, you, you need to understand what that culture looks like and what you're getting into because that can play a big part, uh, especially if it's a service-oriented industry and and the people are really the business, which is, again, the, the third organization that uh, that we acquired. And it was a big piece. And we didn't get in there. We learned a lot after the acquisition and everything had been papered about that piece of it. And it wasn't anything we couldn't, uh, we couldn't navigate. It was just different. Yeah, it makes sense. No, yeah, I think yesterday I talked to somebody that is wanting to join the, uh, the lab. He's in his 30s and he quit his full-time job last year. And he was kind of wanting to get a few people telling him, like, yes, this is a great idea. And I actually did not do that <laughs> because, like you're saying, the, the emotional component is something that is not talked about too much. But not only is it extremely stressful before due diligence, after due diligence, and after you get the business, it's even more. Like, I'm, I'm actually in day 90, uh, well, Monday, officially, day 90 after my first acquisition, and I can tell now I'm kind of seeing all the other stuff that I never saw before. And like, there's good and bad, there's challenge and whatnot, but it is a lot of emotions combined throughout the process. So I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up. Um, the patience is critical. So for the people listening, there's that double reminder right there. Just be patient. This is a long-term thing. It's not a short-term, like just buy a business, get rich quick kind of thing, even though it is pretty dramatic and impactful, the financial impact that it could have the right acquisition. But, you know, I, I want to go back to what you were saying on your kind of criteria, and there's probably a whole lot more to it, but you're basically saying like the willingness and like if they're ready and whatnot, or were those deals, the majority of them, your deals were those with brokers or direct with the seller? We were direct, you know, to date, we've, we've talked to some brokers and, and uh, we've, we've talked to some people that can go out and sort of shake some trees, but we've been doing a lot of that ourselves. And going out, having a lot of those conversations. And that's really, you know, the first step is finding out, are they a willing seller? 
Or do they just love what they're doing? Right. And that's okay. That, that can become a little exhausting just making a lot of phone calls and emails. And, but that's the nature of it. And then the reasonable, again, or somebody may say, yeah, I, I'm willing. I'll sell my business. Uh, and then they give you a price that's just outlandish and or they want their terms. And so you're, you're never going to find really the common ground where makes it a good value for you and, and a good value for them. You really want to find you know, what we refer to as the fair zone where you know they're getting something that they want and is in line with the value of the business. We're not trying to gouge anybody. You can't force anybody to sell a business, right? I mean, it, it's not an arm wrestling competition. It's it's a negotiation. Also, with the size businesses that we've purchased to date, you know, seven figures or below, it's emotional, right? These are sellers who've built this business in some cases a decade or more, or two. You know, we one seller that was it built the business over two decades, and so you get all, you get emotionally involved uh, on the seller side and you have to understand that and there therein lies the patience again of going through that understanding the seller's point of view and your point of view and again you know, reaching that fair zone of buying something you know, in, in a range that makes sense for you also you don't want to get yourself stuck again yeah and i think that's pretty unique again with the people that i see all day every day on and this and again i'm only being around this this whole ecosystem for the past three years but a lot of them are only working with brokers. It is a lot of work to go direct. I happened to get a chance to work with a person that was not working with a broker. So I, I absolutely love it. And I, I just cannot even imagine working like we did if there was a broker involved. We literally moved very fast. And it was a whole different level of connection and trust building. It was super, super cool. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, like with, with your process, like you definitely have somebody that is doing this stuff, like the sourcing, some a team member perhaps, or there's a whole system that you guys have developed. So I'm curious to know, whatever you can share, again, we will we, we try to keep this as general or as specific as you want. You don't have to get into any specific detail if that's you know not strategic for you guys, but anything you can share about your process on sourcing off-market deals. So I say over this past three deals, uh, we've sort of developed a, a team. Not all of them are you know in on the actual equity or acquisition, they're partners in the sense that they become fractional resources for us to tag in on these as we get them teed up. And so there's different sort of players on the team with different strengths. Everybody adds a different value. And so we have a particular team member who's really good at finding those deals, having those initial conversations. And we have others that are great at understanding the financial ramifications and whether we need to bring in money, whether that is that bank money, is that SBA money, is that PE money, how that looks like, different members of the team, how much they're going to throw in, like just sort of making the numbers of it work. And then we have some people that are just sort of confidants and and um, indoor groups that we're, that we're a part of, whether it's a, a buy and build group or a Vistage group, and we throw these things out to other people because who's to say my idea uh, or perspective is the best? I think, you know, sort of getting others, what can be dangerous if, if, is if I were to go out and just do this on my own, you, you get sort of a, a fixed mindset through one perspective and it, it may work, but there's, uh, I think there's power and diversity in making these decisions from, from different perspectives. And again, sharing with a group, I can't speak highly enough of that so that you, you just get so much wisdom and insight, you know, sort of the idea of surround yourself with people who have done this more than you. Right. And uh, and you'll you know, it'll better your chances of getting it right. Yeah. I don't know that we'll, I don't know that you and I gave will always bat a thousand, but as close as we can. 
Yeah, and so in a lot of these people, you know, other than professionals that get paid by the hour or by, you know, closing and whatnot, there's some other people that truly enjoy supporting and helping, like maybe you were mentioning. Do you guys have kind of like a established board of directors or something similar to that in, in this particular kind of group that you're talking about for acquisitions, or is it more lean than that? No, we're lean. I wish we did have a board of directors. I, I think we sort of look at our groups that we've joined or have sort of popped in and out of, whether that might be masterminds or getting part of a Vistage group. And then there's other uh, acquisition groups that you can sort of dance in and out of. I think those are really valuable. Sometimes it's just sort of throwing out the, the crux of, of a deal and where you are with a price and terms negotiation and coming up with something creative that you sort of land on the same price and terms, but how you get there and how you approach the deal somehow just speaks better to the seller. Do you know what I mean? Like you really have to understand. And, and sometimes it really comes down to just asking them, hey, Gabe, what do you want? Like, what's the number one thing? Like, and sometimes they'll say, I really just want this much money up front because I have, I want to go do something with this particular money. I already have something in mind. And if you just don't ask those questions, you may just like go back and forth and back and the deal just falls apart. Uh, yeah. I would just encourage people to be direct, build the relationship and find out like why somebody's selling. That can play a factor, right? I mean, it shouldn't be a secret. That doesn't need to be a chess game. Like, just tell me, why are you selling the business? And the more relationship and conversation you can have with the seller, the more likely you are to come to the terms that make sense for everybody in that fair zone. Yeah. I think one of the things that it, it's definitely challenging for off-market deals is like building that initial connection. Like if I think the Harbor business, I forgot the name of like the acquisition entrepreneurship book from Harbor and there's a class and whatever. One of the examples that they have is they teach the outreach method and it's something like very personal. Actually, I like it, but it's something around the lines of like, hey, you know, I'm presenting myself in a personal a way that we can relate and whatnot. And you go straight for the question, like, can we jump on a call or something like that? And the guy walks you through, like either send it through mail or email but I'm curious to know if the, if, you, if your team have find any other non-obvious way to start a relationship. For example, I was talking to a, a client of mine that he's now wanting to buy businesses, but his ideal business, he's in the healthcare industry, and he will want to buy like PR healthcare-related agencies, uh, which you're not going to see a ton of those listed with brokers, so they will have to go the same path that you are. So I think it will be for, for those particular clients, it will be very difficult uh, for their, those particular companies. It will be very difficult to be like, hey, are you selling your business? Jump on a call. It's got to be a different way. So we were brainstorming about it. And he ended up coming over with a way like, well, I'll just first reach out to them saying that I'm looking for a strategic partner that can help with my client, which is true. And then start the conversation there, build rapport. And after that, just start like maybe after the second call, then that's when he will ask the questions. Again, I don't, he haven't done it. So the people listening, do not try this at home. <laughs> but I'm just curious, Lucas, if your team is going straight for asking like, hey, are you open to sell your business? And then you jump on a call or are you guys having a, a more creative way to do it? I'd love to tell you that it's more creative. Um, the one thing we do try to, to do on the front end of that in terms of building a relationship, right? I mean, relationships take time. You at least have to show thought and in their business, right? Do a little research, understand if this is a business that you really want, again, be really transparent. Like, hey, I've been watching your business. I'm in this industry or I understand it for X, Y, and Z. 
here's where I think like we could add a lot of value together. And, and again, we would throw out that better together adage as as an example of like, we're really doing this with you. And again, the level of deals that we've done, again, taking the personal route has, has worked for us because it has been. And showing something specific about their business that you like and how you think that you could add value and, and speak to really growing the business because because acquiring the business is one thing, but we, our goal is is the build part, right? We, we want to look at the business and how can we grow the business and add value longer term. So ideally, you'd like to think that that's what that person would want to do too, right? I mean, there, there are businesses, I, I've talked with the people that said, look, I'm good, you know, floating the business at three or $4 million is a lifestyle for me. And I, I really don't want to grow the business. Okay, well, we might not be the best partner for you. And we, maybe we won't be better together. We'd be together, but we wouldn't be better, you know, right? So it, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So we try to make that personal connection and, and relate to something. And, it, and if those stars start to align for us, then that usually will spark a conversation. Unless again, they're just not willing. Hey, I really appreciate you reaching out and thanks for admiring my business and what I'm doing. I'm liking it too right now. And so now's not the time. I'll let you know if things change, right? I'm sure you've seen that that email, that uh, that phone call, you know, a hundred times, but yeah, it's great. I mean, even that sometimes building that, you leave yourself open to that somebody walking back through that door later, rather than just being like really cold and direct. And you're sort of a thought that's fleeting. Uh, they'll never think about Lucas McCann when the when the time does come to build their business. And so you, you sort of closed your own door. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, you're getting me excited because I can tell like it's going to get better even as there are more deals on kind of like in the pipeline, just because long term, again, the, the long term mentality like the more you're playing, the more you're adding value. And even if they are not wanting to sell right now, they're thinking of you as a potential strategic partner in the future, or they may just refer to you somebody. So thank you for sharing all of that. I think that totally makes sense. And, you know, shifting gears a little bit in here, talking more about the process and like before buying these businesses or you got three, what were some of the things that kept you up at night during that process of the acquisition? You know, some, some of the concerns going back to the emotional components of this, this whole journey. Yeah, so um, the for me, it's really the the unknown, right? I ask a lot of questions. I, I want to know as much as I can ahead of time. I'm probably a little bit more patient than than some in that regard. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know why they want to sell. And ahead of time, my goal typically in there is to identify the opportunity before we even sign. I I want to know mentally where I'm going with that business to sort of take it to the next level. And, and seemingly on paper, you could look at things and go, well, this business is doing pretty well and it's not growing by, you know, 20 or 50% every year, but it's, it's shown a little bit of growth. And I'm, I'm in there asking questions to sort of understand where's the weight that it's dragging down? What could some automation or technology do to this business? Where could my network uh, introductions potentially add new client base to this organization? Or where could it couple with another business to partner and allow it to grow more quickly? And essentially, where are the blinders of the current seller? We all have them. I mean, even in our own businesses, we have blinders that, that we're missing. And so that's, that's another reason to just join more groups and have more conversations because people ask you about your own business after the fact. Hey, why aren't you doing that? That's a great point. But in the initial conversations and, and building that rapport in parallel with doing everything you need to do as part of due diligence, 
I'm looking for those those opportunities and trying to understand in my head, build those out so that when we when we do get to a deal and we get to the right price and terms and on day one, we're ready to implement whatever changes that we we, want, we might want to. And the more I hear you talk, the more that I hear that that whole we mentality and how that's almost like it sounds to me like your recipe for success in every sense of the way, like every single thing that you do is just you're thinking about collective, a community, your partners, your clients, your team members versus like for a lot of the people, again, solopreneurs buying their first business. It's a lot of work on us, even myself. Like I, I take it, I take the bullet. I figure like, oh, I got to solve this or, but the reality, I do not know how to solve it. And that's where we have to kill our ego and be like, yeah, I don't know. And ask for help. And I think that's something that I'm really appreciative. And even with you doing this podcast that I truly respect, you have a lot going on and you still take the time to share with other people. But it is something that I keep hearing, not only during this episode, but I can tell like, you know, with, with your partner, uh, he was on one of our calls and that's a big thing for you guys, right? We well, a little bit of that is you can't do it all, right? You've tried to do it all, I'm sure, yourself, um, and that gets really, really hard. You just can't, right? So it becomes, okay, here's something that needs to get done. Who's the best person to accomplish this? Sometimes it might be me. Sometimes it might be somebody else on the team. It's going to be just, frankly, be better suited for that um, and also you know, leave some time for me to go focus on something that where I do want to focus my time, where I, where I find some joy and where I can add more value per hour type of thing. And, and it's just some of it is just having the self-awareness to know that, you know, I, not everything is a gift of mine, right? I have gifts, you have gifts, Gabe, like, but knowing the limit of your gifts is really, really powerful, I've learned. And I, I you know, there was a time arrogantly where I thought I could do it all. I'm, you know, I'll just do this and I'll just take it all on because I could do it better. Uh, and you know, maybe with age and with experience, you learn, no, there's some lanes that I need to stay in. There's some things that I'm good at, and there's some things that I'm just not. And recognizing where those are and then bringing in the other we's, the other people, that's a big part of it. So is it two or three partners total in the current kind of, is, is it a holding company or are, there, are, are those all separate entities? Yeah, so I have one partner, uh, we create a holding company, and then we have different operating companies, partly because... The there may not necessarily be a buyer for all of the opcos within our ecosphere, right? There may be a technology company that isn't interested in consulting, uh, but they are interested in the technology stack. And so we've intentionally created operating companies under the holding companies with an exit strategy in mind because there there may just be an opportunity where, hey, this technology is being really sought after and the timing's right, the multipliers are all right, and we want to be able to easily sort of carve that out if something came along or what have you. Now, we have no intention of doing any of that time soon. Again, that's that's beyond the 10-year mark, if anything, because we, we want to keep our 10-year outlook in sight and we sort of build towards at least a 10-year prospect and where we want to go. And then, so carving those out was intentional for that purpose. Okay. And so, but it also leaves us some optionality with at the opco level or, or even a mezzanine level if we wanted to bring in other investors. And we've done that at the opco level. So there's partners that are just at a specific operating company that aren't necessarily at the holding company with my one business partner. And that, again, the optionality of that in and out seemed to us to make sense. It's a little bit more work setting it up. 
but again, if you're thinking that long term and not just in the short term, um, it, 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 we think it makes yeah, sense. Like we, actually, this morning I talked to a guy in Guatemala. He's part of the acquisition lab, and he just bought a fintech company. It's like a 1.5 million and whatnot. And he was telling me yeah. like he has a family office. They put half the cash. The other one was investors. And then we're chatting, you know, for 45 minutes at the end. It's like, well. There's core four areas of businesses, and he goes about it. He explains, well, finances, operations, marketing, and then, like, people, right? Like, recruiting and all that good stuff. So, so, so he wanted to have – he was going about that idea of, like, setting up ops company. And then instead of – like, he's going to buy a lot of companies with this family office and whatnot. It's like, I need people in marketing. So instead of hiring all these plus, like, I'm just going to have a company. He was just brainstorming with me. It's like, I love it. Yeah. And he's going to have marketing company that serve all these companies and whatnot. I'm like, oh, very, very cool. So anyways, I think. Um, so his marketing company will be sort of at the, uh, at the hold co level. Yeah. I was like half, part of me is like, well, that's very distracting. But the other half was like, well, maybe not. Maybe not because there's going to be some recurring needs in all those areas, right? So we've opted, for better or worse at this point, to really embrace the idea of the fractional resources. And so we have a marketing resource that helps us with the different operating companies. But in order to create some delineation, we signed multiple contracts with that marketing resource to help service the individual operating companies separately. So there's separate contracts. It's the same resource. So we get to work with one person who understands you know, what's happening on the other side of the fence, if you will. But if we ever needed to in the future, you know, sort of cut ties and with an exit strategy or, or anything else, we have some optionality there within there that they are. It's difficult to create, right, clean lines because um, right. you want to just, oh, it's operationally makes sense. Economies of scale and everything to just have a single resource. But you do want to keep some clean lines so that it doesn't get commingled. Um, we've looked at some businesses where we wanted to purchase part of a business. And when you really pulled back the onion or looked in the kimono, whatever silly metaphor you wanted to use, it was all entangled in one. And there wasn't really any clean way to sort of pull it apart. And then it becomes difficult within due diligence to understand, you know, where are those allocated resources? Which ones are really things that you can pull out and attribute to that business line or not? And there's liability in buying a business like that that's not entangled or untangled, uh, so you speak. If everything's un entangled, we don't look as, as good as, uh, as an acquisition than, than a business who is. But is it at a control level or is it contract plus, like the tracking the time and like keeping all of that organized? Is, is there anything else other than the contract and the tracking and like make sure that it's very clear and there's historical data that this resource, it's been allocated that way or is, is there anything else? Uh, well, we're in different different systems, so we don't. We actually, again, will not commingle. You know, a CRM. We won't commingle a project management tool. So there are some things where we're probably missing opportunities for economies of scale in that regard. Like if we have separate instances of a technology stack that we're using to service the business, we're paying a little bit more, but we're we're keeping the delineation. Yeah, very cool. Well, yeah, you know, we were gonna go there, but it's super cool that. Uh, you guys have thought about all these granular details. And again, for the audience, that's where you start closing these deals and you start finding opportunities and it may not be what everybody recommends. So this is a perfect example. Like this sounds like a really clear path. And even what the brainstorm idea, what I was sharing with Diego this morning 
it's completely opposite to the regular advice that everybody says. Like, yeah, just have one person manage everything in one company, and that may not be the best for everybody. So anyways, I wanted to ask you about partners, it specifically decision-making, for example, like this, uh, just to kind of come with a hypothetical case, like you're doing the diligence, you're in it, like we talk about the emotional stress, there's a whole lot of things going on. Um, you find something that really concerns you, you talk to your partner who's completely against it, and you, you want to go forward. So if it's only two partners in this particular case, again, we're not talking about Anthony or any other partner. We're just talking about your hypothetical partners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, then, and then how do you navigate those decisions where there's only two or three partners, then two are against, and you are for it? Well, you have to sort of navigate that lightly. Is, is that an opportunity that you would pursue without those partners? Does that make sense? You sort of have to have those conversations. Like I, I can't encourage people to have just as many conversations with your partners about all of the hypotheticals. What the worst thing um, that you can do is, is not have the conversation. And then, and then something like that happens because people can get really emotionally charged and, you know, then you have to walk into a very difficult conversation. And so setting the expectations and then there's there's a level of trust with partners. Right. And we, we joke sometimes it's it's almost like a marriage and, you know, writing sort of a prenup exit strategy and an operating agreement for a hold co is a little bit like that. Uh, for better or worse, you, you write the prenup up front on how things are going to go. And, you know, in a, in a hypothetical business divorce, but you have to do it. And at the end of the day, some of the things you lay on the table and go, Hey, look, as partners, we either trust each other or we don't. And if we don't trust each other, we shouldn't be partners. Um, just as a marriage, if you don't trust somebody, don't get married. And if you do, that has to be the lens in which you look through everything. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Be honest and, and open with them. And if you do have to have a difficult conversation, do it. Don't hide it. Don't hold it back. It's better to have it early and often then then let it fester. That's when you're working on the business, when you're working in the business, I think that goes both ways. Like it's just a key component. Excellent. And again, I'll wear those scars, you know, like the rest of the mistakes I've made uh, and just hope to not make them again. But I, we've, we've all stumbled and it's really important to take that time and, and reflect on those things and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I think moving to kind of like the last segment of the show, it, now that we cover a little bit of, of your journey on buying this and your mindset, specifically again, team and trust and all these core values, which they sound corny when you hear it and, you know, in a classroom or a presentation or a even motivational speaker talking about this, but we can see with what you're sharing that that's the name of the game. It's got to be those core values. It's got to be that trust. But I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your vision. Now that you bought this businesses, you had that business originally. Now you're talking about a 10-year vision. So if you could share a little bit more of what that is and what keeps you excited about and why 10 years and not five or not 25. I know there's some crazy people that are doing a 100-year planning. Like I think, I don't know how they do it, but that's way too much. You know? Yeah, the 100-year plan makes me giggle. Uh, you know, I appreciate it. You know, you think of the the jobs and the musks and the people who are who are really thinking long term, I'm going to change the entire world, not just my world. Right. Um, those are the the one the one hundredths of one percenters uh, in my mind. And, and I think that's really admirable. I think 10 years um, is just an outlook that is 
plausible. You you can somewhat you know you, you can't you can't write a forecast for ten years. I think that's silly. Uh, I even think writing a forecast beyond three years becomes a little bit of a futile effort. I, I don't think that's going to work. But I'm young enough at this point. Like I, I'm I'm in it. it. It excites me. You know I'm I'm not looking to cash out anytime soon. So ten years is is an outlook that again I people underestimate what people can do in 10 years. And if you look at the businesses today that are doing really well and you look at them 10 years ago, a lot of them were nowhere, right? Um, and we could name 50 examples of businesses that, I mean, some of them just came up in the last five years, to your point. But I, you know, in the back of my, you know, I say 10, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking 2025 20, or more, but I think 10 is that, that plausible piece. And I think that's, that's why. Yeah, excellent. So for for the core company, is your vision uh, like you talk about building value and you want to continue to perhaps acquire other businesses? What are some of the things that you want to do with those businesses? What's kind of your exit strategy? May not be the question at the moment, but yeah, if it's just a ten year horizon, is it acquisitions or is it you know other niches, other verticals? So you talk about technology, consulting, partnerships. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes tell people I have this mentality where I walk around almost constantly and go, there's got to be a better way. Um, I think naturally I'm a fix it type of person. There's, you know, there's everything I, you know, the classic example is I travel a lot and I'm sitting on the plane trying to get off and go, man, this is the worst, right? There's got to be a better way to, to get ourselves off a damn plane. I mean, just you could sit in the front, that'll do it. But, but in general, higher level is just, you know, how do I, how do you, how do you solve this problem? I like solving problems and the bigger problems, the better. There's a lot of problems in our industry with, with membership. And it, some of it is people, some of it's operations, some of it's technology. And I mentioned before, like we typically get this rap that we're 10 years behind and we're still a little bit behind in, in a lot of ways, and maybe we're six years behind now. Maybe, we, maybe we've evolved a little bit, but there's still a lot of opportunity in that regard. In our industry, there are association management companies. That's like a branded thing, um, and their role in our industry is to help those association heads, the executives, and the boards in areas where they don't have expertise. And so within our holding company ecosphere, we're building out operating companies that specialize in specific areas, right? They, and core affinity has a core competency and the other organizations have core competencies. And we look through the lens of, can that organization be the absolute best in the industry? And even at the next level below that, we don't want to add business lines or services unless we think we can be the absolute best in the industry. There's some big companies in our industry. And I think they suck a lot of them. Uh, I think they fall short on service. I think they fall short on a lot of different areas. And so again, there's got to be a better way. And we're building towards a better way of doing that has a focus of relationship. Our industry is very relationship based. And so we've been able to use a lot of what we've learned there for purposes of acquisition. You know, I mentioned you know, relationship on the front end, building that has got to be key to making something happen or at least being on the forefront. But building out those services, products, solutions that you know, do it better than what it's being done today. And then, and then who knows, maybe build our own association. There you go. Excellent. 
So that's a great vision in there. And it sounds pretty exciting when you can see your competitors are, are not necessarily having a phenomenal uh, solution. And that kind of becomes an inspiration for, for you. I can totally see that in the agency industry as well. So yeah, kudos to you and your team and wishing you guys the best. Could you just now something very specific just because we're doing a podcast in here and I noticed that you guys have a podcast and you talk about relationship and relationship building. So just for the audience, a lot of the people that I'm interviewing, they they have been, you know, the podcast and whatnot. I love podcasting. My previous company was a podcast production company. So of course I'm kind of biased, but I would love to hear in, in your industry, like you mentioned, they are 10 years behind and you still decided to innovate and bring a podcast to build relationships. So why did you decide to do that and how is that working for you guys? Oh, that's good. That's a fun story. It actually started, we were working with the National Trade Association. I was just talking with some of the executives and they needed to redo their website. And they had a meeting to discuss, okay, well, how do we, how do we redo our website? You know, who can we go to? And kind of silent around the executive table and board meeting with some other people in the organization. And they said, okay, well, next, next management meeting, you know, everyone come back with some recommendations and came back the next time crickets, right? No recommendations. And somebody asked, well, who, do, who did it last time? And, you know, obviously they had that name on file. Well, let's just go back to them. So they ended up going back to that organization because they didn't know who else could build websites for associations as, as if that's unique. Uh, other than some plugins, right? There, there's thousands of companies that, that build websites and can do a phenomenal job. And, and my response at the time when I heard the story was, well, man, I wish somebody had just let me know. I, I could have referred a dozen people that have built so, uh, you know, websites for other association clients of ours. And we've just, you know, through the years, built the network. And so the impetus for Six Degrees of Associations was to introduce executives to suppliers and vice versa. And so we have a we have a mix of suppliers to the industry and we, and we give them an opportunity as a stage to talk about, you know, what problems are you solving in the industry? How do you do that? What challenges are you facing? How have you pivoted? And then from an executive perspective at our at our clients, sometimes not clients, just associations we meet, you know, tell us about challenges that you're having so that our audience can benefit from hearing the things that you're going through. And there may be opportunities that if it's association specific, membership group uh, specific, what are you doing that's that's succeeding? We want other people in our industry to hear that and just sort of share, right? Uh, there's a, a lot of times in our industry when we meet with executives, they want to know, hey, what's happening with, uh, with other associates? How are other associations doing X, Y, Z? A lot like your show, like you hope that your audience can can capture nuggets from what I'm saying and your other guests are saying. A lot of people who are doing this maybe would welcome some perspective and some advice. There there may be a small percentage of people who are just so arrogant they believe they <laughs> they can do it best every time, but good for them. Yeah. Um, but that was that was really the impetus for our show is we we wanted to bring a stage to talk about things that are happening in the industry, solutions and problems. Um, and, and strategies. And then at the end of each episode, we say, hey, could you could you refer us to somebody you know? And then you get the six degrees of Kevin Bacon or associations, whatever you want to call it. So, Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, super cool. Uh, again, Lucas, thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, to wrap up the show, we'd love to hear some final advice for acquisition entrepreneurs, either first-time buyers or like people buying their second and third business. Anything else you want to, you know, recommend, best practice or any uh, advice that you want to share? 
I, uh, for me personally, that reflection time and, you know, sometimes even if it's a half day or a full day, looking back, writing down what you did well from the first or second or third and what you didn't do so well, keep a journal of those activities so that you don't, you know, just move on with life and forget about those. You can revisit those at the next, you essentially write your own book on how to do it. And I'm sure that everyone out here has probably read books on this and talked to tons of people but remembering your own experiences is much more, in my experience, much more helpful in, in figuring out those. And you read something in a book and you can apply it and it's hypothetical, but real life examples have really helped us better our process and better our approach to the relationship and the negotiation. And, and not only on the front end and during it, but on the back end, right? How do you treat those sellers is important because you it there's relationship all the way throughout this and you just never burn a bridge and then always be looking to be bigger and better uh, what i found is the bigger deals aren't necessarily harder they're different but they're in some ways they're easier believe it or not than than doing the smaller deals so don't be afraid to level up excellent thank you lucas appreciate you uh joining us today and the show notes uh, you guys will find the links uh, coreaffinity.com is, is the core website, but there's going to be links for the podcast so you guys can check it out. Uh, and if you guys want to reach out to Lucas, we'll have, again, the link to his business. Anything else we should add in there or good, Luke? I'll send you a link, other operating company, bigredm.com. It's another organization just recently went through a rebrand. They're doing fantastic things. Uh, we have a tremendous team over there. Just went through mid-year strategic planning. Everybody came out super excited, myself included. And um, it's just a great example of the value of good culture. Excellent. Well, that's it for episode 18. And again, thank you, Lucas, and hope to see you in a few years again in, in the podcast. Yeah, let's stay close. Thanks, Gabe. Yeah.